folks, this is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support our work by finding us on Patreon, Venmo, or Ko-Fi. Our Patreon includes a short mini-series called The Prologues, where we talk about some peripheral stuff to the podcast series, and we do things like polls about content that you might want to see covered next, as well as some upcoming video footage that'll be available from here on my farm that we'll be releasing before it's released to the general public. So if that sounds interesting, go check it out. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Ibanez from the University of Michigan's School for the Environment, where she specializes in ecosystem science and management. We chat about her research and discuss the complex relationships between climate change, invasive species, and mitigating the disastrous effects of species struggling to travel fast enough as the earth quickly heats up. Our conversation is short and to the point. The three-headed beast of decimated forests from generations of mismanagement, climate change, and globalism have created a unique catastrophe, which doesn't provide many clear answers. But decades of research are starting to give us glimmers of hope that the ecology is more resilient than we give it credit for. So take a listen to our chat and let us know what you think. Inez, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your research and kind of how you ended up doing this very unique type of research? So I started as a biologist with an overall interest in anything bio, but as I got deeper and deeper into it, um, I moved into ecology because it pretty much includes everything, organisms, the physical environment, you can study the cell functioning, but you can go all the way to the whole planet. So I found that to be absolutely fascinating. And within ecology, I specialize in forest ecosystems. because probably I love them. I love working on them. I love spending time on them. They're a very important ecosystem, but many of them are. So, but yeah, so I found it um, that to be my niche for ecology. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting to me as well. I, I live in New England, so it's mostly forest. There's not too much prairie lands or anything like that around here. It's really interesting. The more you know, the more you notice. And uh, it just kind of sucks you in deeper and deeper. One of the things I did notice is that you also tie forestry and ecology heavily into climate change from things like invasives to the forest dynamics themselves and succession and all of these different pieces. Did that come from that same interest of just kind of digging in deeper and deeper to the subject matter? Or was it you were seeing changes and it was concerning you? Well, it's a little bit of everything. Um, When studying forests who have been, it's an ecosystem that has been studying for quite a while a bit because it's so important for um for humans but what is happening right now is that the rules of the game are changing everything we knew about successional dynamics how for example we can harvest but it's still having a productive forest that continues growing that may not be the case right now because again the rules of the game are changing now we have climate change um, have introduction of species, some of them invasive, we have pollution, we have landscape fragmentation. So it was a little bit of, of everything um, you mentioned. Uh, it was very interesting on how forests function and what we are seeing right now is that the environments 
forests are functioning, it's changing quite a bit and it's creating these novel environments of which we don't have much information. So now we have this uh, combination of climate change, landscape fragmentation, introduction of species and pollution, and all this is changing the conditions under which forests are growing. And we don't have knowledge of how forests are going to be responding to these new environments. So, so that's the research question that has been um, driving all the research that we have been doing in my group. Awesome. So specifically on the um, invasives, uh, one of the things around here, I'm sure you guys have it there, is Japanese knotweed. And it's really interesting the way it seems to spring up in some spaces and then not at all in other places, even though the ecologies are very similar or they would seem to be similar. Are you guys in your research starting to see anything that might be pointing to why invasives sometimes are taking over and then other times not? So that's definitely part of the work we try to do. And um, it's a difficult question to answer because it's going to be a different answer for each species and for each location. So there is quite a bit of research on invasive species, what it makes it introduce a species to be successful to the point that is harmful to the native community. And there are different theories, there are different mechanisms, and I'm sure many of them apply to any particular case. Um, but what we have been trying to do now in our research is to move a little bit away from that question and to move more into the native community. How can we make a native forest to be more resistant to invasives? So we are trying to use all the knowledge that we have on forest ecology and invasive species and try to figure out what are the characteristics of a forest that make it, again, more resistant to those invasives. So even if they colonize the area, at least they don't take over and harm the native community. So that's a little bit where we are going. And again, it's a complicated question with many different answers. Um, but what we are seeing again and again is that when you break the natural system with a neo disturbance, for example, uh, of which the native community has no way to respond to, that's when invasive species take over. So preventing that is, is the key part of it. So with that, Obviously, we're working with a very small, historically speaking, period of time as a sample. Are we starting to see that selection pressure from those invasives either driving evolution or starting to show signs of the ecosystems being able to kind of find a place for those invasives that otherwise had no place, and that's what let them kind of go wild? Yeah, so... We are definitely seeing the latest that, that those invasive species start after they have been in the system for, for a few decades, start being part of the system without being harmful, with, without having populations that are large enough to affect others. So this is part of definitely of the evolution of the system, usually is related to the system having some kind of enemy towards that invasive plant, for example, having a parasite or a herbivore or a pathogen that is going to be affecting it. That's interesting because from the, I guess from the, the layman will call myself, there's a lot of conversations between foragers and people that are just outdoors people about like, oh, if you see an invasive, rip it up. Like... If you're going to spray a chemical, if it's a, an invasive, it's okay because like it shouldn't be there in the first place. Like I'm sure there is a, a point where 
it's important to put some pressure on those species. But at the same time, the goal is that we're never going to get rid of them. So we need to find a way to integrate them into that system. Yeah. It's good to see that there's some actual evidence of that happening. And, uh, you know, we don't ever really, or at least from my perspective, it never seems like we have the evidence to see that. But if, you know, folks have been studying it now for decades, I'm glad to know that it's already being recognized as something that's happening. Yeah, no, there has been a shift um, into invasive species management. There is a time in the invasion process where eradicating the plant or, or the organism um, is feasible and it will lead to, you know, removing removing it completely from the system but now for many instances we can't it's a lost battle so now there is this thinking about okay we cannot completely eradicate these species but how can we manage the system in such a way that we reduce the amount of harm sure and that way give those native species a chance to uh, evolve to it that selection pressure isn't too much to exterminate it um, you know we can do various things to try to do that so one of the terms I saw in a lot of your research, which I wasn't really familiar with, was the term uh, phenological escape. Could you talk a little bit about that? Okay, yeah, of course. So phenology is um, are the processes by which uh, different organisms go through different life stages during the year. So for example, when plants flower or leave out, yeah, when mushrooms come out. So that happens every year and it happens more or less in the same season, but there is certain variability. And that's because the or- organisms are responding to environmental cues. It can be temperature, it can be moisture. And when the cues are there, that event, life event happened. So that's phenology. Um, what we are seeing now with global warming is winters are warmer, springer, springs are warmer, so plants are leafing out and flowering earlier and earlier. And um, that's in increasing the length of the growing season, which you can think about it as something good. Now plants in especially cold climates are going to have a longer period of time to be able to grow. At the same time with global warming, what is happening is the summers are becoming hotter. So there is more water demand. And if there is no more precipitation, what it means is many plants now are spending the summers under droughty conditions. And where plants don't have enough water, what they do is they just go dormant. So even if you see a plant that is green in the middle of the summer, if it's dry, it may not be doing anything. It's not taking carbon, it's not growing, it's just dormant. Just surviving. Yeah, survive, yeah, sustain there. So we see two things. Plants are benefiting from global warming in the spring because they have a longer growing season. And at the same time, they are being affected negatively by global warming for what is happening in, in the summer. So phenological escape, what it's telling us is that thanks to that earlier phenology in the spring, they are able to compensate for the negative effects that are taking place during the summer when they go dormant. Okay, that's interesting. So I had thought of it a little bit differently. I I really hadn't thought about that part of it, I guess. Uh, And I was thinking that that stress was a component of allowing some of these invasives to further work their way into these ecologies. Yeah, no, that's another aspect of it. One of the reasons why invasive species are so successful, they can grow so fast and produce so many fruits, is because they take advantage of 
early sprints to a higher extent than the native community. So they are usually the first ones to leave out and flower, and they're also the last ones to drop their leaves. So they have an extended um, growing season that allows them to be more successful. So that's also part of the phenological escape phenomena. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting the way the, the dynamics play with one another uh, in some weird, like it feels like this chess game that there can't be an end to, uh, where the mm -hmm. parts move around and it can mean two or three different things. With that in mind, I, I want to tie it back into the like, climate change invasives and this the, um, I guess, the conditions of the forest and uh, the degradation from the last couple hundred years. I know um, to track back to my own native forest here in New England, uh, one of the things that we see is because of constant logging, a lot of those old growth succession species, they they aren't really around here. And, uh, you know, with the, the large uh, seeds that can't disperse very far, getting them back without human intervention is nearly impossible. Or at least it will take a long time. Uh, you know, there's like, in my area, there's like four hickory trees within like a five mile radius. You know, there's no way for that in the near future, in my lifetime at least, to ever see that succession process take place. And in most forests, the same trees that are the canopy are also coming back up underneath. So I feel like that also feeds into some of this ecological uh, health that is just waning in a lot of ways. So with climate change, is that in a way something that is helping the I'm trying to think of how to phrase this there's there's these like three different components that are going on and in some ways invasives are giving life that can handle the climate that we are moving towards versus the climate we have had does that make sense like how how that ties together and in some ways invasives might be considered a good thing because they are giving that life force that can survive the, the new climate. Sorry, that was really confusing. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if you mean the new climate of one particular place, that if there is a, a gap on what it can grow there, because sure. the local species cannot grow and then invasives can. So yes, definitely it's, it, it's fulfilling. Um, they could be fulfilling a gap. It's just that invasive species may be a species we may not want to to see because they are weedy. They are not the ones that produce good wood, for example, or they grow and harvest a lot of carbon. So, so the main, many issues where we don't want an invasive community, even if it's available and able to take completely over. You were mentioning about the fact that yes, plants are not going to be able to keep up with climate change. The rate of climate change is too fast for plants to be able to move through their seeds to the new areas where they can survive and and definitely we are going to be have to you know to assist and um, um with, with that movement if we want to do that or not and that's part of much of the work we have been doing in our group because we know where the suitable climate for many plants is going to be and if we want to replace those areas with the species that are going to be doing well we also know that the rate of migration won't be able to keep up with climate change so should we be moving then or not so some of the work that we have been doing is moving them ahead of time and the whole idea of moving them is not 
to check if climate, if the climate is going to be suitable. We already know that, but it's to check what else is going to be suitable or not. Are the soils going to be the right soils? How are they going to grow within the native community that is already there? What about herbivores or seed predators? And at the same time, if we start moving these species, will they become invasive? Will they become weedy? Because suddenly they are not going to have the regular pathogens and herbivores that feed on them. So we have been doing all these experiments to answer these questions. So if we are ready to assist plant species to migrate to new areas, we want to have all the information possible to be sure if this is going to be a good idea or not. So at this point, is that type of work primarily uh, research or is there actually, uh, are you actually busting out shovels and starting to put stuff in the ground? It's research because that's what we do. We do basic research. So we are generating the knowledge and then, you know, people managing land can use to, um, to try to manage their communities the way they want. Sure. So with that in mind, what is realistic in terms of how you envision the the future of the forest i know you're out you're in michigan correct yes so like what what is a comparable um so like what are you planning for in terms of like you're saying climate change 50 years from now 100 years from now 200 years from now uh and then with the forests are you thinking about a, a healthy developed forest which means then you have to also think 100 years from now 100 you know all those different things yeah so so we are we look at what is the distribution of species and we are not bringing any things that are growing in the tropics of florida here sure. that's, that's way too far but for example we are bringing things that barely make it to the southern great lakes area so there are several species that the northern distributional range is is around um the southern part of the great lakes and those are the ones we are moving north to the northern part of the great lakes so it's not a big jump, uh, but it's what it will have been the natural movement of a species if they have enough time to keep up with climate change. So you were talking about hickories, for example. There are hickories that grow in southern Michigan, but then don't grow in northern Michigan. So those are some of the species we are moving to northern Michigan. And are you thinking about that forest succession in that process, or are you thinking primarily about those trees that take longer time to move north? We are trying a, a, a variety of trees of many different, you know, many different types. Um, because again, we have many different questions that we would like to answer. So um, some of them are early successional species, others are late successional. So we are just trying to generate the knowledge that if there is a land manager, a conservancy, who is interested in promoting um, southern species into the north, they have the knowledge that they need to know if they're going to be successful, if they are going to be weedy and they shouldn't introduce them, if they are going to be um, targeted by herbivores, for example. So we are not really moving things in bulk. We are experimenting with them to provide that knowledge. Okay. And... I, you, you've brought up a couple times this idea of like whether or not the soil ecology can support those species. Are you doing anything to help or have you looked into research about um, moving the, you know, the fungi and things like that? We haven't moved the fungi, but we have considered 
the fungi available in the forest and, and the role it could play because that's critical for plants that they have that association. So it happens that as far as you are using forested soil, um, plants, trees, which are the species we work with, are going to be finding suitable fungi to associate with. Sure, they're, they're so, similar enough. Yeah, they're similar because mycorrhizal fungi, which are the fungi that associate with trees, are relatively generalist, so they are doing well um, in that respect. Where we are seeing differences is in the pathogens. So pathogens are a lot more specific of the species that they affect. And what we are seeing is that by moving a species beyond the area where they usually grow, suddenly they are released from some of those pathogens so they will do well. Oh, that's interesting. Now, on the flip side of that, are uh, is there any concern about new pathogens from moving novel species? Yeah, definitely. Um, that kind of always happen. Uh, it probably won't happen if you are just planted um, seeds, but if you are moving plants with soil attached to them, that's definitely a possibility. We have seen that already happening with, you know, introductions into different continents. So, so that definitely can be an issue. Okay. Uh, so I, I want to talk a bit more about the, the role of globalization in um, this process. So obviously we have all these invasive species. Um, I recently was speaking with a researcher who was talking about an under- I guess an under-recognized problem in like mainstream media about like climate change and all of these issues that we're talking about. And it was about the fact that there's so many bugs essentially that are traveling through globalism, especially now with, you know, everyone's in COVID. So everything's shipped online. Uh, it's not even bothering going to a store first and maybe something dies before it comes to your house. It's going straight to you. And uh, that there's uh, a lot of issues with those types of whatever they are, bugs, mosquitoes, insects. Uh, is that something that you guys are in your research seeing as a, a common thread or is that not really even, uh, it just kind of falls into the, the, the mix of all of the issues of climate change? No, it's definitely a, a key issue. I would say that in Eastern North American forests, the um, threat of introduced pathogens or pests is probably the highest risk. You know, in the West of the United States, it's more about drought, but in this area, it's just going to be um, probably a pest or a pathogen. And we have seen that in the last 150 years, there is a recurrent introduction of diseases and, and pests that have been affecting forests. Some of them are worse than others, so they're going to continue coming. There is no doubt about that. Um, and it's very difficult to be prepared for it because the reason why these introductions are so harmful is because they are novel and the local species, plant species are not having evolved to be able to deal with these new enemies, either a pathogen or, or a pest. So right now, the only tool that we have to prevent damage is diversity. Is diversify forests as much as we can within a species, diversify them genetically, but Trees populations are usually pretty diverse genetically because there is a lot of exchange of, of genes through pollen, but also diversify forests with respect to species because when you have a more diverse forest, the first, the bad damage is going to be lower if it just affects one species. And also the, the pest of the um, disease is going to spread much slower. So it's going to be 
easier to contain. Yeah, I think about like the the chestnut blight and um, what the forest had once looked like. And I, you know, you think about it and you think about like oaks, if something ever happened to oaks, like how, how quickly the forest would collapse, at least in the East Coast. Is there, with that in mind, is, is there a place for humanity to like, have some involvement in terms of like selective breeding or any of those types of things that could help uh, in any way kind of give us um, I'm thinking like we have like seed gene pools that we can dip into for genetic modification uh, for crops when things come up that we never would have thought of. Uh, is there something that we should be doing with trees in that, that same kind of thought process? Yeah, we should absolutely do that with trees because um, we don't know what the nest agent is going to be. We don't know what is the next pest. We don't know what's the next pathogen. And so we don't know what is the gene or genetic background we are going to need. So definitely with respect to wild species, um, forest species, tree species, we should have this kind of genetic bank. It can be through seeds, it can be through arboretums where you have a diversity of genotypes of the same species. This is something that it happened recently with the emerald ash borer that is decimating ash species, but they are, they are finding that there are a few that are able to be resistant to, to this pest. So if we have already banked into that genetic diversity, both across a species and within a species, will be much, it will be a much faster process for us to be able to identify what are the, the genes that we need to be able to, to fight the new pest or pathogen. Is, yeah. Uh, is there any species in particular that you're concerned about that you think is... All of them, <laughs> because we don't know. So this is the thing. We don't know what the next pest or pathogen is going to be, but we know they are coming. Yeah. And, um, you know, they are right there. Yeah. I, I was thinking like pawpaws have, I know, very little genetic diversity because of the way they've evolved. Um, are there any species that are like super common that don't have much genetic diversity like oaks the the one saving grace is that they hybridize easily there's a ton of them are there other species that you're like these are really important but there's not a lot of that diversity i i don't know i'm to tell you the truth the only one i can think about is is a mediterranean pine that is not here but uh here in eastern north america i, I just don't know about that okay. you know more than i do <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that's interesting um it you know the the diversity seems to be so important and uh, we don't really or at least i don't really think about it that often until we have these types of conversations and uh becomes really apparent why oak is so uh successful across the country because it's so diverse biologically and uh it's so able to cross-pollinate and evolve to unique conditions so is there anything that like normal people can do to help either protect or prepare or anything really? Well, I mean, we can be helpful at many different levels. We can be helpful with how we combat climate change with our own particular actions, you know, how we eat, how do we recycle and use energy? So that's one way to go about it then we can be more specific about what is happening with the land and forest. So if there is anything that we can do in our power to protect forests, if you are a landowner and, you know, you can afford it, which is also an issue, if you can afford to protect your forest, definitely um, do that. 
So just knowing about what the issues are and, um, and also knowing a little bit what it may take for the system to be resilient to all these factors, uh, I think it's a good step forward. Yeah, uh, I, I think those are all definitely things, if you can do it, definitely. So I know you work at a, the, the University of Michigan, and it's a unique school. I stumbled upon it and I was like reading all of the, the people that you work with and all their biographies and everything. And I just, it seems like totally different than anything else I've seen in a, in a um, ecological program or a forestry program or anything like that. Uh, could you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah. So we are the school for environment and sustainability. So, so that's the focus environment and sustainability sciences. So what the school is doing is bringing the expertise that is needed across different disciplines. So there are ecologists like myself, but we also have social scientists, which is a very important aspect of that. We have engineering engineers working on energy. Uh, uh, we also have people in the humanities. Uh, we have landscape architectures, which are more focused on design. We have connections with many other schools, business, law, public health, um, uh, urban planning. So again, it's more about focusing on the issue and bringing the disciplines that are needed instead of being just a dis disciplinary department. So it's, it's great for us as researchers because it expands you know, um, your reach, when you think about your research, you think broader that you will do when you are just doing your experiments. It gives you also the chance of easily working with people outside your discipline. So that's, um, that's also very rewarding. Um, so yeah, it's a different way to, to think about science and how we use science and, um, and how we move forward with these environmental issues. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting idea, uh, and I, I'm kind of interested to know if uh, it's had any successful cross-pollination, and I'm assuming it has. Uh, I, I won't put you on the spot about it. It's one of those things I think it, it points to a very natural understanding of when we do research, the fact that so much of it is interdisciplinary, and we don't generally think of it that way until we actually have those opportunities to reach across the aisle in a lot of ways. So like I, I'm a farmer and well, I, I farm, I, I don't like to call myself a farmer because I feel like that implies something different than what I do, but I also am into ecology and there's no way it, you can go to an agricultural program in school and you might never talk really about ecology. And, but at the same time, you can spend time and talk to somebody and be like, oh, look at all these things that we kind of overlap on. Um, and I, I just think that's really interesting when a, a school goes out of its way to actually do that process. Yeah, so we have a um, sustainable food systems group, for example, which includes soil ecologists, entomologists, um, people working with remote sensing data and, you know, very different set of expertise, but uh, including environmental justice, for example. But the whole goal is to think about sustainable food systems. Yeah, so. um, which actually I think would probably be my last question for you. I saw you had done some work with silvopasture, uh, and that that's kind of my niche in farming is I have sheep, I have silvopasture, tree, tree hay, uh, all of those things that are not forgotten but not as uh, utilized anymore. Your research was... And, 
again, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but you had done some research on um, na uh, native species diversity in silvopasture. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Or is that something that might have been a little while ago? Yeah, I think that was a while ago. I know originally from Spain, where uh, Spain and Portugal have a very traditional sil the, um, pastoral system that has been in place for hundreds of years. So, uh, you know, uh, people living in those areas were able to find a good balance of having subsistence living or even be beyond subsistence living and still keeping a system going that included forested area mixture with pasture and, and also um, game, game and, and domestic livestock. So that has been working for quite a bit, but now it's being threatened by climate change. So we'll see if it's going to be able to, to continue or not. It's interesting that these systems that have been in place for so long are threatened by things that weren't their faults, unfortunately. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. This is all really interesting stuff. And, um, you know, I, I look forward to seeing uh, some of the research that you guys continue doing, because I think it's really interesting and, and people want to know about it. We have to plan for the future. Thank you for your input. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends, tag us on social media, and give us a review on iTunes. Reviews help us stand out in a sea of podcasts and continue to help us in getting exciting new guests. Until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Pros Almanac.